Hello and welcome to Living Being. I'm Patrick Randall. I'm Chris Park. This is the podcast where we talk about everything and anything to do with bees. again with uh, the wonderful Sam Day who's doing such a great job going around Jersey interviewing the the Asian Hornet gang and all their their work and research and, and wonderful things and she's she's uh, we're really lucky to have her um, on this podcast with us. That was really great the last episode we covered loads of uh, stuff about the Asian Hornet and about the problem of the Asian Hornet uh, so if you haven't heard that episode then listen to episode 10 uh, which will tell you uh, all about the problems that that we get, the potential problems that the Asian Hornet will bring us. Um, but also, what we wanted to talk about with Sam was a bit more about tracking, and also the what kind of potential solutions there are to to the problem. Why did you first get interested in the Asian Hornet? Okay. Yes. Good question. Um, so I'm a relatively new beekeeper, so I've only been keeping bees for four or five years maybe. And you do that thing um, when you're starting a new hobby, you go on the internet and, and basically it comes back with all of the worst case scenarios. You know, like when you Google medical symptoms and uh, it comes back every time, you know, you're going to die. Um, basically, I, I looked up beekeeping and I just read about this varroa mite, you know, tropolalaps, all these other horrible things. And then the Asian hornet as well. I was thinking, really, I don't, you know, is this going to be the right thing for me? Um, but, you know, <laughs> I, I was hooked on bees. So I, I got into beekeeping and then there was always this thing at the back of my mind, like, what about the Asian hornet? What about the Asian hornet? You know, it's coming. You, you dealing with the varroa, you know about that. Um, and basically, <laughs> I actually got to the point where I where I um, started having nightmares. This is in 2018. Um, <laughs> you know, I would just wake up in the morning and be like, all oh, my bees are gone, they've been eaten, all of them. Um, <laughs> and I just thought, that's it's ridiculous. Like the spirit of the hornet has chosen you, yeah. is calling you. Yeah, I don't, yeah, it was just really weird. Yeah. And and basically, I just thought, no, you're, you're being really stupid, you know, go somewhere, find out about them, find out how really, you know, how bad they really are. Um, so sort of a week later, I was in Jersey and um, Chris, I think you've you've met Bob Hogg and you've kind of yes, um, yep. found out how charismatic he is. And, you know, he's got this really infectious enthusiasm for kind of all living things and, yeah. um, you know, just such a great energy. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to be paired with Bob. Um, so he picked me up from the airport and, you know, within half an hour of landing, I'd seen my first Hornet. We went to his house um, for, you know, unloading all my stuff. And, I, you know, I went to make a cup of tea and I went into the fridge for some milk and there's Hornets in the fridge, obviously, because where else would they be? Um, and then that evening he said, do you want a job? I said, yeah, sure. He goes, oh, there's um, there's a box of dead Hornets that I've been meaning to sort for the last week or two. They're a bit smelly, but they need need um they need sorting out into girls and boys you know for this dissection so we know you know uh what what we've got at a given point in the year um <laughs> so he very much encourages you to be really hands-on um uh yeah and yeah I suppose infectious is just just the word I would use to describe uh his energy um with them you know he just uh he's got a lot of love for the hornet and um 
it, it, it's very difficult not to be caught up in that enthusiasm and um, yes I'm very very yeah. grateful uh, to Bob for for uh, I don't know for this new hobby is it a hobby I don't know I'm sitting here with Bob Hogg of Jersey Asian Hornet Group fame he's the reason that I got slightly hooked on these fascinating creatures Instead of watching the telly of an evening, we're actually pulled up in armchairs alongside a tank of hornets, which are incredible to watch. And I'm sure Bob has wasted many an hour sitting here wondering what they're doing. sanity to it. <laughs> so, Bob, how would you introduce yourself? I'm Bob Hogg. I'm a trustee of the British Beekeepers Association and all-round good egg. <laughs> Fair enough. So I have a nest of uh, a captive nest of hornets that I took out of a bush in a park in Jersey just over two weeks ago and put it in a vivarium tank on a frame. It was badly damaged when it was put in and there were perhaps 15, 16 hornets in it. I took 25 larvae out of it for scientific work. Uh, since then, it has doubled in size. The nest is now complete and there are approximately 50 hornets in there. We know that because Sam and I clean them out. You have to clean them out every two or three days. So what we do is you have to take the nest out of one tank. It's on a, it's on a frame so that's easy enough to do. Put the frame with the nest on into another tank whereby all the hornets that can fly fly away. So I do it in my downstairs bathroom. And all the hornets fly to the window, which I usually keep closed. Put the nest into the new tank. Go out closing the door behind me. And the remarkable thing is that most of the hornets go back to the tank. And so it's quite easy. You just mop up the uh, tenor with the tank today left behind and... We've now invented an introduction portal so that any hornets that normally I would have hoovered up because I couldn't get them back into the tank are now returned to their nest. So I never reduce the number of hornets, so they'll just grow and grow. In fact, one day soon, the tank will probably lift off because there'll be so many hornets in it, if that was physically possible. And what is the fascination with hornets? I don't really know, but then my first pet was a wasp. And so I've always had a bit of a thing for wasps and bees and, well, anything. Well, I have a thing about everything, really, but I'm one of those sorts of people. But things that people say, you can't do that. I really enjoy doing best of all. So people said can't do that. So I've been doing it for the last three years. And would you say hornets make good pets? I think they make excellent pets, so long as you treat them with respect. I've been stung seven times now, and each of those times, it was my fault. It wasn't anything to do with the hornets coming and attacking me. I was attacking them. And they responded, and quite honestly, most of the time, they responded with a gentle sting. 
sometimes they give you a much more painful sting, which is probably they've given you one warning and you didn't listen. Or in this case, you didn't take any notice and you get a harder sting. But hey, I'm still here though. Well, I think that's great for beekeepers all over because the things that we're learning from your research here on Jersey is fascinating, actually. And we think we're learning right now just sitting watching these hornets. So we've observed a new behaviour today that I don't think had been described before. We don't know until we ask uh, other researchers if they've seen certain things before. But certainly today we've watched one hornet waiting on the uh, outside of the envelope of the nest and when another hornet comes by, not every hornet, but it seems to wait there and then it grooms them. It sort of cleans them off. Quite, quite fascinating. It's rather like the cleaner fish you, you, you know, you see in David Attenborough programs. Only this time they don't swim, obviously. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, that's great to hear you both in your hornet mode doing your thing. And I think I must have met Bob Hogg through you, Sam, at a BBKA convention a few years back. And he's, I guess he's been your mentor, hasn't he, for the Asian Hornet? And the yes. two of you, the two of you are like a team, aren't you? And so uh, how did you, how did you first meet Bob? Um, I was very fortunate in that the first time I um, expressed an interest in going to Jersey to play with Hornets, um, well, I wasn't playing with hornets then. I was I was absolutely terrified of hornets. So let's just get that straight. I was terrified of hornets, but I needed to to know more about them to understand them. And I was very was lucky to know the enemy. Kind of exactly. Thing. Yes, that's yeah. what I was intending when I when I went over there. Um, they paired me up with Bob Hogg, who had a spare room and was available at the time that you know I was free to go. So you know, within half an hour of landing, he said, "Right, you want to see hornets? Let me take you to some." Uh, he knew where there was an active tracking case, so we went literally straight from the airport. We looked at some hornets. Um, I was standing back like, Ew! you know, these, <laughs> these things are going to come at me. They're going to eat me. It's going to be horrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so very, very quickly, he kind of got rid of the fear. And then, as you know from meeting Bob, he's very charismatic, very enthusiastic. It's so easy to get swept up when you're around Bob um, in his passion for all things um, well, living, really. Yeah, and I can see how that's rubbed off onto you and the the way you talk about Asian hornets. You've both got that real reverence and, and love for them. And it's, yes. and it's really, which is which is contagious. It is contagious. And you think, yeah, when someone's inspired about something and enthusiastic, it, it's, you just want to you just want to know more and learn more. Yeah. So tell us so more. It's, so it's all Bob's fault, really. <laughs> but obviously, obviously, Sam, Bob's uh, helped you to sort of understand the Asian hornet, you know, quite significantly more and to observe the, the Asian hornet. I mean, you've been, so Bob and you have been experimenting and looking at, um, looking at ways that you can discover more. Can you tell us more about the methods you've been using to, to discover more about this, uh, this creature? Yeah, of course I can. So Bob's theory has always been that a dead hornet is totally useless. Um, because it doesn't tell you anything except there was a hornet here and it was alive when it arrived but it doesn't tell you anything further than that you know has it come from a nest is it coming and going somewhere or is it you know has it just come out of the cab of a lorry and it's totally lost and it doesn't know which way home is yeah. it's like it's a dead end it's a, it's a frustrating yeah. dead end for any researcher yes 
So he's always been of the opinion that if you can keep them alive, you will learn far more mm -hmm, than mm -hmm. if you just are presented with a dead hornet and somebody says, I found this in my garden. It's like, well, you know, that's great. But So is that, is that your advice to listeners? To If they find something that they think is an Asian hornet, don't kill it, don't swat it, uh, just trap it in a, with a cup and a piece of paper or something and then take a photo and send it off and someone will come and have a look? Definitely, you have to record it. So if it's the first hornet sighting in that area, um, the MBU will want a sample. So, yeah, if you can trap it and then chuck it in the freezer, um, that will kill it, fine. Um, okay. And they will probably want that sample at some point. So, But you but need you, to record it, first of all, through the app. But would it, would it, if it's alive, would you, would you encourage people to keep it alive? Or to put it straight <laughs> in the freezer? There's always a danger of... Uh, it's escaping or, you know, you showing it to, oh, look at this cool insect and it's in a yeah. jar and you drop the jar and then the thing flies off. Um, so I would say, yeah, probably straight in the freezer mm -hmm. um, yeah. at the moment, definitely. Yeah. But, a, but a live hornet uh, okay. for, your, for research purposes is much more useful than a dead, dead, dead hornet. Oh, 10 times more valuable, definitely. You, you, you get to observe the behaviour. Um, if you're out in the wild, you, you will be able to find out whether these hornets are at an active nest. You know, if you give them a bait, that hornet will sit on the bait, especially if you put it on the bait when it's hungry, um, and it will go off to its nest and come back. So that shows that it's actively foraging for its nest. In a, in a captive situation, obviously, it's more difficult because it's not a natural behaviour. You know, they're confined to what is a very small tank, really, in terms of how, how big their foraging area would be. So... It's useful in some ways, but we also have to bear in mind that we might not be getting natural behaviours that, that we might observe in the wild. But we can still do things. Um, so one of the experiments that we did when I was there, um, Bob had an endoscope and we actually, when we were doing the tank cleaning, I, I turned the nest upside down and I removed some larvae so that we could actually time how long it takes from egg to larvae and unfortunately I wasn't there for long enough it would have been fun to to follow the larvae when they pupated to when they emerged you know to get a really accurate um, life cycle I suppose of the individual yeah. hornets in um, in Jersey uh, but yeah it, it had its own problems but we can go into that later have we got a clip of this we've got a clip of it yeah you said oh, it's a clip, yeah. wonderful clip and uh, let's listen to that the, 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 this is great this you can actually well listen to it it's the sound of the larvae. You probably won't believe me if I told you there are no live adult hornets here. This nest that I'm doing a dissection on was treated with an off-the-shelf permethrin-based insecticide spray. And this incredible sound is coming only from the larvae which survived the spraying, complaining that they're hungry and they want feeding. They make this sound by scraping their mandibles down the sides of the cell that they're in. And it's really quite astonishing how much noise an individual larva can make. And are you documenting your work? You're certainly documenting nests, aren't you? And sightings and all those things. And how about... You're like, you know, do you write, do you lecture for bee clubs? Do you write articles for bee journals? I mean, is there a way that you can take your, all your everything you've learnt and, and share it with the world? 
Um, I do give talks, but if I'm honest, I don't really enjoy doing it because um, I'm not a natural public speaker. It makes me really nervous. It's horrible. Um, but I do it because it's important. So if I'm asked, I will I will yeah. do it. But I really, you know, I don't really want to encourage anyone to ask me, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I'm, remembering, I'm remembering asking you to do this podcast and you said... Um, love to do it but you're feeling terrified and you've done such an amazing job amazing. You have yeah, done, yeah, yeah. it's so professional so, you know someone gives sam day a job you know <laughs> step down david attenborough here comes sam day yeah, I, can't, I can't believe you wouldn't be amazing at giving talks i can't believe it uh, thank you both um yeah no don't i i do it but it's it's quite reluctant so um your fear is your power have you heard that saying you know, no it's, uh, it's often true when when those butterflies are in your stomach it, it's your, it's something, it's the X factor rising within you. Anyway, let's get back on track. Yeah, let's just go back to uh, something we were talking about in the last episode, which was, uh, you know, we are talking about how the nests are discovered, um, how they're, how they're tracked. But can we have, you, you spoke to Bob Tompkins, didn't you, about, um, about hunting yes. and, and trapping. Can you tell us a bit about this Bob? There's another Bob. Can you, can you tell us a bit about him? Yes, yeah, so Bob, Bob Tompkins, um, as I think I say in the clip, is just a really great individual. He does so much um, for various causes, um, and I've listed some of them, but I, I realised I didn't give an exhaustive list when I was interviewing him. He he is just amazing because he um, he goes out with his wife, Jill, and they basically do things for, for very noble causes. So one of the things that I didn't tell you about in the clip is that they, they will actually track down ancient dolmens. Um, I mean, amazing. These things have never been officially recorded. And yet these two will go out and say, oh, that rock looks kind of how, you know, and oh, there's another rock over there. Imagine if they were together and this was... So so they actually kind of piece together these ancient things. Right. Um, so, you know, they, they are just such interesting people. And yet it's Hornets that keeps, you know, them coming back. Um, so I think it was really valuable for me to actually ask Bob the question of what is it that hornets have um, that some of these other interests might not that, you know, that is just so fascinating for many of us. You can see the link with people who are fascinated by a, a certain thing because it's a sort of detective work, isn't it? There's, there's, there's a, a sort of sleuth mentality to it, uh, piecing together uh, clues until you uh, you come up with, you know, a result at the end, which is potentially finding a nest and and uh, trapping it uh, but let, let's paying attention yeah paying attention to the world around you and yeah you know, getting off your, off a screen off your phone and looking at the wider world and yeah and just being fascinated by it and, and researching so yeah. good for us isn't it? <laughs> just to, just to look out your window go outdoors and look at it and see see what's there yeah mm. and have the having the time to do that and you also spoke to to john didn't john de carteret is that right um can you tell us a bit uh, about um, what? Can you tell us a bit, bit about John and how you met him? So John DeCarter's background is um, well as a forensic police officer, basically. So he uses many of the skills that he used to have in his day job before he retired, uh, and he's kind of moved those into the hornet sphere and seen what what could be useful, what's applicable. Um, and he does a really great job of documenting everything that he can. Um, so every time a nest is found, he will go, he'll take photos, he will... Um, he Actually, it's a really, really useful tool for people to see how difficult these nests are to find. He'll, he'll take a, a photo from the street, just, you know, that is the tree that you're looking at. 
Um, mm-hmm. Are you able to spot it? And then he'll zoom in and zoom in and zoom in. And there's a whole series of photos of most of the nests showing various ranges. Right. And what was he doing with these photos? Is he are they published somewhere or? Yep, they're all on the Jersey uh, Facebook group. Okay, let, let's listen to uh, let's listen to those two clips. Let's listen to Bob, uh, followed by John. I'm here in a place called Roselle with Bob Tompkins, who makes up one half of the Tompkins Dream Tracking Team. <laughs> My question I have for Bob has actually been kind of eating me up since I've been here and I just haven't had a chance to ask him. Bob and Jill are an incredible couple and they are involved in so many fascinating projects, you know, barn owl conservation, you put up bat boxes, you look after birds of prey that get yep. found that are injured. And you do beekeepers. You're beekeepers, yes. You do so much that's really, really interesting mm. and yet you keep coming back to hornet hunting. Mm. So what is it about hornets that have that fascination for you? Well, it's the chase, okay. I suppose, really, yeah. Um, you know, it is, it is tracking, it is hunting, it's, it's, a, it's a field sport. And it, it's very addictive as well. Not that I'm competitive, of course, you understand, <laughs> but, um, uh, <laughs> um, but once you do get into it, one of the things, of course, is that it gives you a tremendous opportunity to go into places that you wouldn't normally be able to access. And uh, we've got some fantastic countryside here. But it's also very difficult terrain, as you can see from where yeah. we, we're situated now in this valley, yep. uh, with very tall trees and dense underscore as well. The hornets coming in from France get sucked into this valley because the winds are east, northeast. Uh, the valley's open to that direction. Um, it's got ideal habitat for them when they come in. There's lots of old buildings and everything else that so make them while away the winter months. And then in the spring, you know, out they pop. Now, this... Who's this? Who's this? That looks like a hornet. That looks a lot like a hornet. Yes, oh, it is. wonderful. Yeah, so the, the, the magic spray works. Now, some of these hornets are big, and I think all they're doing is coming in onto the station, refueling, and then buggering off to catch wasps and everything else, mm-hmm. you know. So I like to see the small ones come to the station because they're, they're much, much more likely to be just coming and going, coming and going. We found six nests in this area so far this year. Wow. We found a total of seven last year, so... But primarily it's because of its, you know, A, our proximity to France and B, that, you know, they just get sucked into this valley when the, the wind's in that direction. So valleys, valleys are the place to look? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, if, certainly with us on the east coast, we've got three valleys like this. And they all face just about east, northeast, and that's the predominant wind direction that the hornets come in on. And we're here, we're 15 miles from the French coast. So, yeah. Um, we, did, we have had traps out over the springtime to try and catch queens coming in, but this particular valley we relied on non-hornet hunter people to monitor traps for us. It didn't go well. Mm. Um, and where we have been putting our own traps out and everything else, then between here and Goree, which is what, a mile and a half, two miles, we caught 15 queens. Wow, that's this year? Yeah. Wow. Right, so the trapping system does work. We don't know how many came in, of course. Yes, you know, but you've got, you've caught a percentage, and that also will indicate to you as well the likely areas to check as the season progresses. Yes, because if you've caught that many in specific areas, and the chances are at least one or two have got through. Yes, and so you know you've got to start looking at those areas really. 
I'm standing at a nest that was treated yesterday. It's in a bank immediately next to Country Lane. It's not got a lot of traffic, but people do walk down here. And I've got John DeCartret with me, who comes and documents every nest that's found. John, what is the importance in taking the photos and the videos and all of the work that you do when a nest is found? Why do you do that? I do it so that people can see the insect to be able to identify it and get some idea of the varied locations of the nests that we found in the last three years. Three years ago we started looking just in the tops of trees but this nest we're at now is in a roadside bank at head height where people are walking past. So it's awareness for me, public awareness, getting it out to public through the Facebook page and a lot of material that goes on there is varied and people can comment and I hope people get information out of it. What's the name of your Facebook page please? It's the Jersey Asian Hornet Group. Thank you very much. This morning I've come to the site of a nest that's been found. It's a beautiful spot. We're facing the sea on the north end of the island. There's a lovely stream running alongside a bank and it's a tree growing from that bank that's got a medium-sized primary nest almost at the top of the tree. The sighting of the nest is quite interesting because it's very high up for primary, but the entrance is still at the base of the nest, so that's how we can tell that it's a primary nest. We've got pest controllers here and most of the Jersey gang who are just interested because this is the first time we've used this particular system for taking the nest down, so I think they're assembling a lance and they will inject some pesticide when they know how they're gonna get it up there. Great, so that's a kind of powder, I guess, is it like, like the way, same way that a pest control officer would kill a wasp's nest in yes. someone's loft? And you sound like you're not a fan of that, Sam. Is that a last resort or has that always happened to a nest? Or they, um, they actually try not to use pesticides where possible. So yeah. there are some situations where it's just really not a good idea, you know, near a water reservoir or on the coast or, you know, some, some situations are just not ideal. Um, yeah. but there again there are other times for example when the nest is in a in a wall cavity where you, you know it's just not going to be possible to naturally take out the nest um yep, yep. but sometimes you know you if you have for example in a, in a bush or a low tree you can cut away most of the branches um let them let the hornets go back and, and settle down and then you can actually go basically with a bag and just bag the whole thing use um CO2, a thick bag, I have to say, not not one of these you know, really flimsy uh, bin liners. Um, and you can use CO2 to kind of take out the ones that are flying around still. Um, and this is at night or you, or in the, you do it in the daytime? Yeah, that's one of the things they've, they've learned in Jersey. They, they used to take out the nests in the middle of the day, but obviously the problem with that is half of the hornets are still flying. So yeah. They come back and the nest is gone, but the hornets are still there, so they then cause a nuisance. So now they, they it's either first thing in the morning or last thing at night. If they're treating with pesticide, it's less of an issue because obviously anything that's out foraging will come back anyway and still be exposed to the pesticide. Yeah, I mean, some some people listening might might feel you know a bit squeamish about this and think um, and. Th- and think you know you're a wasp nest or something you know let live and let live let the thing carry on let it let it kind of peter out at the end of the season let the queens hibernate and and then uh, a new nest will appear but this is different isn't it asian hornet it's a different it's a different uh situation we're in here and it's uh 
if we leave it to run its course, we're we're really looking at changing the whole ecology of well of the UK if we let it in. So yeah, these these hornets are just so successful here, um, and the, the picture in Jersey is not completely accurate, as in they have worked every year to reduce the numbers. So they are nowhere near the full capacity they would have. You know, they, the the island would be able to sustain um, if they did nothing. So, you know, if you if you go to some areas in France where the hornets have already been established for 10, 15 years, you, you get a vastly different picture to what we see in the UK and what, what they're dealing with in Jersey. Yeah. I think an interesting thing that I've read recently was that they've discovered a, a nest in Hamburg in Germany, which is quite significant because Hamburg's on the same uh, latitude as um, Manchester. Yes. So it proves that, um, you know, Asian Hornet would be successful. It, it, some people have argued that, that, that we're sufficiently far north for the Asian Hornet not to not to get a foothold because of the climate, but actually uh, that's that's obviously not true. So we have got yeah. to be on our guard, haven't we? No, that's that's a rubbish argument. I've, I've heard that as well. But it, unfortunately, the, the climate that this Asian Hornet is um, used to is is already fairly extensive and it includes a similar climate to what we have so there's no reason they won't become established here unless you know we are able to stop them basically yeah do you think that's possible do you think we are able to stop them or do you think it's just a matter of time and your what the real value in your in your work is going to be understanding them and their behavior yeah i do think they will become established not mm-hmm. not immediately because it will it's obviously a slow spread as they kind of encroach and we need the numbers in northern France to be high before we start getting regular crossings across the channel and then mm-hmm. you know we might miss a nest one year and then the next year we have a couple of clusters in that area of nests so it will be a gradual process but I do think they will become established um, and I think the value of the work that's being done in Kent in Exeter and and various other places is basically in management of these nests. So it will be mm-hmm. um, basically the, the quickest, the easiest way to, to deal with it. Um, you know, one year might be bad for hornets, the next mm-hmm. year might not. That's, that's how these things always are. They're kind of cyclical. Uh, yes. So I think actually if we can listen to the clip, um, I managed to, to have a word with Peter. Um, I think he explains this very nicely. Peter yeah. Kennedy... Peter Kennedy, yes, sorry, yeah. Peter Kennedy from the University of Exeter. So he's working on the radio telemetry. Uh, he's yeah. been in Jersey this year. Unfortunately, I missed him by about two days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he found, his radio telemetry found the nest that Bob Tompkins wasn't able to find in the clip that we've just listened to. I've managed to hook up with Peter Kennedy on Zoom to find out all about radio telemetry, which is really, really exciting. And I think Peter and his team at the University of Exeter have had a lot of success both in Jersey and in the UK as well. We were asked to help out in the UK and used it on one occasion okay. uh, to locate a nest in the UK. But otherwise, we also worked in southern France and briefly also in Galicia in northern Spain. Okay, so it's a really exciting technique because basically you are able to find nests that the tracking teams aren't able to. But could you give us just a very brief, very simple explanation of what is radio telemetry? How does it work? So 
in its simplest form, it involves attaching a device that emits a beep at a regular frequency. It's, it's obviously not an audible one, but it's transmitted across radio waves. You have a receiver and you're picking up that beep, but you're using a directional antenna that helps you work out in which direction that beep is loudest. Mm-hmm. And that helps direct you towards where the, the hornet is. So it's particularly useful where you lose sight of the hornet. So either it's flown beyond the sort of 50 meters or so that you can keep it in eyesight, or otherwise it's in thick vegetation where you generally lose it relatively quickly. I think that's one of the main advantages with the radio telemetry over the the sort of more traditional watching, visually watching the the flights of the hornets. So you place a tag on one hornet and you follow that hornet. So unlike with working with bait stations where you're waiting for hornets to return to a bait station and it may be a number of hornets that you are following to pick up the likely nest location. With this, it's just the one hornet, or hopefully it's the one hornet that takes you to the nest. So potentially you can find a nest much quicker than you could if you were just on the ground with a pair of binoculars. Well, the spotting of the nest, unfortunately, you still have to do, obviously, with the binoculars. That can sometimes be the bit that takes the longest part. The following of the hornet can, in some circumstances, be relatively quick. Actually, one of our first nests that we found, we found within 45 minutes, of which we probably spend a good 15, 20 minutes staring at the tree trying to spot <laughs> the nest. Yes. So it, it can be really quick. That was a nest that was 500 meters away. So it wasn't even sort of right next door to us. But you obviously also have other circumstances where it's harder. On Jersey, I was tracking a hornet that disappeared down a deep valley where you start losing some of the signal. So you then have to sort of try and relocate that signal by repositioning yourself in different places. I'd assumed she'd just gone straight down the valley down to the coast, went all the way down to the coast only to discover she wasn't there at all, and then had to retrace and then sort of climb up the valleys until we got that signal again and then we could follow it. So sometimes you do have to cope with the situation and with experience you get to work out what are the most likely places where she may have gone where you have lost the signal. And so you've kind of answered my next question which was going to be are there situations where it's easier to use the radio telemetry or are there conversely situations where it just won't work? We are still working on trying out lots of different locations. I had an experience on Jersey in St. Helier on the Queen's Road where I was quite surprised the difficulty I had because of lots of radio interference. So I'm not quite sure what it was along the Queen's Road, why there should be so much radio interference there. There was lots of car traffic and sometimes certain cars, whether it's their radios or something with the engines, it creates some interference. Other occasions, I haven't had a problem at all. Or or it could have been something that's just with the gadgets that we have in our our buildings. There was just a concentration that that interfered too much. Mm -hmm. But I have used it in semi-urban areas where I've had 
no radio interference whatsoever. So I suspect that the more challenging environment is going to be the, the more built up areas yes. where there's more potential for, on one hand, radio interference. But the other thing is you also have lots of tall walls or buildings where you then end up having to deal with reflections. And then it becomes a little bit tricky and needs a bit of experience to be able to interpret those to work out where the hornet's going. Mm. So my last question for you then is, do you think in the future, when the Asian Hornet is established in the mainland UK, there will come a time when an association might have their own kit that's based on what you use now, and they loan it out to people who have bad hornet predation in the apiary, you know, much like we have branch extractors that you can borrow for a day. Do you think there will come a time when that tech is more freely available, maybe a bit more affordable for your average branch, and we will be able to use it ourselves? So to start with, I probably need to state what the situation is at the moment, and that's DEFRA are very clear that at the moment associations can't track with radio telemetry because it involves the release of an invasive species and that so at the moment the rules don't allow it so where we operate in jersey we do it with the states of jersey knowledge and obviously if that's if there's a relationship there as it is between the Jersey Asian Hornet volunteers and the state, then I'm sure that will be allowed. In France, you have to apply for a permit, but I think there's an acceptance that the invasive species laws as they stand didn't actually take into account that you could be releasing a non-reproductive individual. Mm-hmm. And it's more geared to species which aren't social insects. Yes. There is basically a flaw in the law. And so people are thinking about potentially reworking that. And in those situations, I definitely see that people will be using it. But ignoring all that, reaching a position where it then is permissible, then I do see that this is a potential technique for associations to use. And I also can see that they could afford within an association to use some of this kit. Sometimes you can borrow it from other groups. So on Jersey, for example, they have borrowed radio telemetry gear from the zoo. Okay. Sometimes bat conservation groups, they use the same radio tracking kit for tracking bats, following them to their roots. So you can, sometimes you don't even need to go through the expense of acquiring the kit, which may cost you sort of in the region of a thousand pounds. It depends which particular manufacturer you use. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a one-time cost that obviously then you get your money's worth from you reusing lots of times. Yeah. The problem is with the radio tags, because they have a limited life and they're mm-hmm. off, obviously that's the cost element. But when looking at the cost of it, you do also need to take into account the time it would otherwise take to find these nests. And so a tag is sort of the equivalent of maybe 17 and a half hours of someone on minimum wage. Uh, okay. So if you see it in that context, if you can find that nest in sort of the next five, 10 hours, then maybe radio telemetry is not the route to go. 
but if it's a, a complex situation, then the radio telemetry will give you the benefit. Yeah, definitely. The trick is making that decision early enough so you don't spend all the time looking for it and then still add the cost of the radio telemetry on top of that. I think we've all been there trying to track down a nest that looks easy on paper and yet two weeks later you're still walking around the same couple of fields and looking up into the same trees. So that will be an interesting one, learning to make that call on day one when you get the first Hornet reports as to which method to go by. But okay, well thank you very much. That's very interesting and I'm sure everybody will be looking forward to the day, hopefully, when... Well, no, maybe not. <laughs> that we don't want these hornets in the UK. No, absolutely not. No. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time, Peter. That's all right. Great. Oh, fascinating. And thank you, Sam, for for that. And I can see how you really want to get your hands on a bit of that kit, don't you? Maybe one day, <laughs> maybe one day you have one attached to your phone or something like that. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, yes. oh, so, there's so many intricacies, aren't there? All the legalities and the, and when it's useful and when it isn't useful. Uh, I can see as, as soon as you step into the world of tracking and and hunting these hornets, it becomes a it becomes a lot a, a much bigger picture than you would imagine. Yes. Yeah. There's there's loads going on. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm sure we'll be discussing episode three sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, it's, it's, yeah. it is amazing. And, uh, you know, the, the, having to make that call about what, what technology you use as, as more technologies come on stream um, to to track them. I, I presume there's some technologies that, that are being looked into to actually monitor hives themselves. Yes. Um, well, I suppose our, our project at Kent is fairly similar in that... Um, what I was actually doing in Jersey was was generating data for this uh, this project with the University of Kent, and the aim of the game is to develop a a low cost, low power device um, that's pretty cheap actually, and you should be able to just plonk them everywhere, you know, in your in your out apiary, um, you know, down the street just to monitor because you think you might have seen a hornet there once, or you know, you can you can just scatter them about and they should alert you eventually when they detect an Asian hornet. So I was able to ask them to really simplify what they're hoping to do um, and, and explain it, hopefully in a way that, well, one, I can understand it and uh, anybody else that's not particularly techie. Um, but, but the concept is, is fantastic because it should mean that it really limits the amount of um, volunteer hours that are necessary when we're tracking these things. You know, hopefully a branch can be able to have a couple of these devices and when there's a suspected hornet sighting you can just put these out they won't harm anything native um, so that's the problem with a lot of traps is that if you don't empty them all the time they they kill uh, other insects um, and that's really why trapping should kind of be discouraged until the point where mm -hmm. the predation is heavy in the apiary at which point you you know what you're targeting you know they're there um, so this is just very simply a monitoring trap um, that should just text you when there is an Asian hornet. So it's it's a genius mm. idea, um, and I really, really hope that they succeed in, in producing such a device. So I'm just having a Zoom meeting with the team at the University of Kent who are behind the Monitrap device, which I have taken out with me to Jersey um, to trial. Uh, and I'm speaking to Andy King, who is... Um, the lead on this project, Andy. 
what started your interest in Asian hornets? Well, Sam, I think you know that the answer is you. You what? came along. Yes, that's right. It's all your fault. You came <laughs> along to a, a beekeeping meeting, didn't you? And you and you and you, and you told in great with great energy and zeal about the problem of Asian hornet. And there I was sitting in the audience, thinking not only about your talk but also about the possibility of putting together MSc projects. And as academic, that's something we do every year. And we search for ideas. And your and 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 your problem was just perfect. For setting up a um, MSc project, which which um, to um, to build a prototype to um, um, to test the feasibility of um, checking for Asian hornets in the field. So that's how it started. Actually, started with you, and I, I and I don't know if you, if you remember, but we had two students working away on it, and they came up with a rather sort of Heath Robinson um, prototype at that stage. And then I phoned you again out of the blue, and then we met up in the Galbenkian. And you were so enthusiastic about the terrible bit of kit that we put that we put together, but uh, uh, um, uh, the, the students were actually bowled over by your enthusiasm, <laughs> <laughs> and that was the start of this more serious endeavour, which has been taken forward really by um, Keith and also by Dan. So perhaps it's best you pass over to them now. I think that's a great idea and I'm, I'm glad that um, blushes can't be picked up on audio. So um, yeah, well, I'm sorry for, uh, for dragging you away from, you know, normal electronic stuff, um, but also pleased that you've discovered the fascination with Asian hornets. Um, so maybe we need to hear from one of the technicians. Um, so Keith, maybe you can give us a very simple explanation of how this device works. Sure. So my specialty is in a field called machine learning, where we try to make computer solve problems that are easy for us to solve, but really difficult for computers to solve in the normal way. The ability to distinguish one type of thing, such as an Asian Hornet, from another type, say a bee, uh, by looking at it, is one of these types of hard problems. We are working towards a piece of hardware that will take images from a small camera, then through a process that we call learning, as it is based on a rough approximation of how we learn, we will be able to recognize an Asian hornet, hopefully, from other native insects. And from that, we can then send alerts to the beekeeper or DEFRA or other interested parties about the presence of the Asian Hornet, and then they can respond in an appropriate manner. Excellent. So it sounds like there's a lot of scope for hopefully cutting down um, volunteer hours in looking for Asian Hornet uh, incursions or outbreaks. Um, yeah. That's great then, hopefully. Mm -hmm. We have um, a device that I can say put in my apiary and uh, it should just automatically alert me as and when an Asian Hornet arrives. Yes, the idea is that it would be simple enough that your typical beekeeper could just place it down um, near a hive maybe and then get alerts as they happen and organisations like DEFRA can get a large collection of the devices and spread them over an area um, that they suspect has Asian hornets monitoring a much larger area with uh, fewer man hours. Excellent. So Dan, how close do you think we are to having a product that I can 
um, buy maybe off the shelf and put in my put in my garden or in my apron. Yeah, uh, as Andy was saying earlier, we had an M an early MSC project where uh, they they actually started on this problem of trying to train a network to identify uh, creatures. Um, one of the hardest bits is actually getting the data to train your network to be accurate about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've been very lucky uh, with this particular research project in actually having an access to an Asian Hornet hive um, so we can actually get in good captured footage of these creatures to train the network. Uh, and we've got similar devices there to detect bees, hoverflies, uh, European Hornets as well as um, wasps as well to actually be able to train it to identify this um, from, from the kind of normal day to day of what we would expect out in the wild. Um, so we've currently got the data collection devices out to start collecting this and they're using the hardware that would actually do the actual kind of recognition in the field. Um, so they're using the same cameras, uh, the same kind of processor as well. Um, and so hopefully with a good set of data, we'll be well on our way to actually deploy something. Um, obviously the, the difference between a device for research versus a product um, there is a bit more of a stretch for beekeepers. We need to make it user-friendly. Mm -hmm. uh, don't want to be replacing the batteries every two minutes. So there are those difficulties, but that's much more just an electronics problem by that stage, um, as opposed to kind of more of a computer science um, machine learning problem. Um, so there's still a few hurdles to overcome, but we've come a long way. And thanks to your efforts, uh, one of the biggest ones of actually getting access to Asian Hornets, where we can get a good set of um, data uh, collected. Uh, that that major milestone has uh, is now achievable. Excellent. Well, I'm I'm pleased to be of service, and I shall try even harder to keep my hornets <laughs> healthy and happy um, as much as I can. Even though that totally goes against the grain of obviously they're an invasive species, and ultimately we want them dead. But um, I shall look after them to the best of my care, and I shall ensure that I generate as many photos as possible um, to use with this project. Um, so thank you very much for your time, and speak soon. Thanks very much, Sam, for everything you've done. And can, can, you. can, I, can I just make one final point, really? Yes. That, that, that in universities, there is a strange inverted um, hierarchy where the people with the brains who actually do the work are the people who are so-called technicians, but these are the people who drive stuff and get stuff done. And the people at the top who are supposed to have the brains, i.e. the professors, are the people who just do administration. That's their work. So all credit goes to... Dan and Keith, rather than and Sam, you've got to have the research assistant. That's all I want to say. <laughs> no, I, I think Dan and Keith, you've done a tremendous amount of work on this. They've been wonderful. Very yes, very well said, Andy. Yeah, great. Okay, so wonderful. Um, any other wild and wacky tracking ideas? Uh, yes, there are actually. Um, Funny enough, I somebody got in touch with me and they are a dog handler based in Kent. So that's why the, the inquiry came to me. Um, and he just said, you know, I've just, I've just started beekeeping, um, but I have a trained search and rescue dog who has an exceptional nose. And I'm just wondering uh, if it's possible to train her on the scent of an Asian hornet. And I think he got the idea from, from a colleague who was training his dog to find bed bugs. Um, so very, very useful in hotels to try and, um, you know, minimise outbreaks. But, yeah. but you know, he thought if, if a dog can detect a, a creature that's, you know, a couple of millimetres long, then surely it's possible to, to train them on the smell of a nest, which, you know, after all, is, is a fair size or can be a fair size. So, um, 
Yeah, part, part of the work I did in Jersey, I, I sent him a few samples of um, basically nest debris uh, when I was out there. And there are some lovely videos of Jess, the search dog, looking for these bits of smelly tissue, effectively, that he'd hidden in the training yard. Um, mm. And she is so good. I mean, it's it's a joy to watch her. And I'm I'm very tempted to go back out to Jersey to see uh, he's, he's going out in a couple of weeks to... Um, to actually train her on some live nests, hopefully. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, I shouldn't, wow. but I really want to go back out and, and watch that in action. But um, yeah. yeah, we've got a clip talking to um, Tony about Jess. So I think, can we play that? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Let's listen to that now. I'm just having a Zoom meeting with Tony Warren, a superb dog handler, and he's got a lovely Springer Spaniel called Jess. And while I was in Jersey, I actually posted a few samples to Tony to get started with hopefully training Jess on the scent of Asian hornet nest materials. So Tony, would you like to tell us about what you hope to achieve with Jess with these samples that I've sent you? Yeah, sure. Jess is a trained search dog anyway, so she has got the fundamentals of search. She does live person searching all through very much the same sort of uh, environment, woods, hedgerows, streets, and all sorts of places, and water cadaver, which is drowns victims really. The dog's really don't know what they're looking for fundamentally, but they're just finding a scent. So they respond to the scent that they're after. So this is just a new scent for the dog in the same sort of environment, not in the water granted, but in open countryside areas, hedges, shrubs, bushes. Springer Spaniels are built for that sort of terrain as well. So as you know, their, their day job really is, is gun dog work and they're built for bashing around in brambles, in hedges and, and stuff, flushing out birds. So it's just a matter of bringing the two together. She's learned to search, so she actually uses the system where she searches and, and sort of covers the area. When she finds the scent that she's looking for, she comes back to me, barks at me, takes me back to the scent, the source of the scent. She's, she never has gone right onto the, onto the scent. So in this instance, it's probably quite useful. She just goes jumping up and down on a hornet's nest. She'd only go to within a two or three meters of it, but that'll be close enough for people to spot it. It's a matter of converting the scent of the live person that she normally looks for and transferring that to the, the scent of the hornets. At the moment, we don't really know what the scent will be, but we picked on the waste from the bottom of the vivarium that they're kept in at the moment to a collection of the nesting materials, hornets, brood, and she's introduced to that scent. She goes waste in just a training environment, actually indoors. She goes to find the, the scent, and she's quite smart on being out of being given a certain scent and find it. So she's finding that now quite reliably. I tested out some more stuff that Sam brought back and I was a little bit dubious as to whether she'd actually go for the nest material because it's just essentially wood pulp and she was straight on it. That's excellent. It is excellent actually. I was quite surprised but there must be a cocktail of scents she's picking out. Would you be able to tell if she's gone to the scent of the nest material based on what she's already learnt from the waste samples or if that's her just finding another unusual scent that she's not encountered before? That's a good question. I haven't because I've had to do my annual assessment for my water cadaver. So the last couple of weeks, I haven't done any of the scent work on the hornet samples. So it was a little bit of a test for her today. So the, the samples I originally trained on were the waste materials from the nest. And today we went for the, the nest material itself, the, the pulping paper and the, the, the collection of hornets and bits and pieces. So I didn't give her that scent. I, I just hid those two scents separately. Mm -hmm. I then gave her the word that I used to tell her that that is the scent that we're after. 
Excellent, okay. As they get more experience, they do come to a conclusion. So you could see that she wasn't quite sure and then she must have recognised something in there, came straight to me. Okay, brilliant. So the real test then will be um, what we were just discussing a minute ago is um, hopefully you and Jess going out to Jersey and being able to practice on some real live wild nests, which I am so excited about. I can't even tell you. I'm tempted to go back out if I can get away with another visit <laughs> to come and watch because the training video you sent me of Jess in your training yard is just unbelievable you know you can really tell that she's just such a well-trained dog you know she knows what she's doing it's the way she kind of moves she does the perimeters she's kind of zigzagging when she's near something that she's thinking you know this is what I want to hone in on and it's just it really was like poetry in motion watching her track down that sample that I'd sent you previously I would love to see you out in the wild finding a nest. So I'm really, really hopeful that we can get you two over there and hopefully there's a nest or two that they can just leave alone for a while. At the moment, I've done all quite small areas. Yeah. So I now want to expand that to bigger areas, which will be taking these samples into woods and into hedgerows and I sort of smuggle my way into areas of garages and bits and pieces and hide it away. So I make the area bigger and bigger and bigger because... I mean, I, I see her searching all the time, so you get a little bit blasé about it, but what you saw there of her searching, we need to be looking at her doing that for two hours. Right, okay. um, and that, that's quite hard work to concentrate, so she needs yeah. to focus. So uh, she does, on, on, on the other searches, she searches all the time. Uh, so my next step is to bring that over here with the uh, sort of samples in jars and bits and pieces into the typical environments. Um, and I'm quite happy to pop down to you if you, if you want to take the dogs out if you know a little area that there might be you could hide them for me <gasps> that would be fun yeah the other risk for me is that she tr um if i'm the only one that trains her, so i go and hide the sample come back sit in the car for 10 minutes and wait she then tracks me yes where i've been and, yes. she, and she cheats they all do so we take that cheat away by somebody that she doesn't really know okay goes and hides it so that so you'll be able to see her working then oh that would be amazing all right, Tony, thank you very much. Good luck with the training. That's right. No problems. So can they, would a dog be able to smell a nest that's at the top of an oak tree, like the one you just described? Do you think they would pick up that scent? Yeah, it would be difficult if it was at the top of a tree. But we, we've already discussed sort of maybe the limitations of using dogs. So I think in the, in the spring they will be invaluable because most of the primary nests tend to be fairly low down. Like in the shed somewhere, yeah. Yeah. So it's just a kind of like a broadening the, the armoury, if you like, the, yes, the arsenal. Having exactly. The right tool for the right time, for the right job. Yeah, and, and where dogs could be useful is actually in clearing large areas of ground quite quickly to say, OK, well, you know, we're in this, this difficult terrain. We've got woods here. We've got fields over there. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of undergrowth. You know, if you had a dog that was trained on the scent and you could just narrow down the search, you know, by going into the woods. And if the dog isn't detecting anything in the woods, then you can just tick that off and concentrate yeah, yeah. elsewhere yeah. Mm -hmm. you know that that's very difficult for for us to actually work in um if, if there's thick woods or you know mm -hmm. undergrowth every now and again if i'm walking my dog past the apiary you know be all sort of whiz out and 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 home in on the dog and find the dog <laughs> it could work the other way around but i just wondering to do you know how about the dog asian hornets and dogs being stung i know cats don't react so badly to bee venom as dogs do but dogs would react in a similar way to us, I think. What, yeah, is, what's the story there? It's a great question and um, really important to mention that Tony is already considering that 
you know, this factor. He doesn't want Jess to get stung. Uh, I'm sure he doesn't want to get stung either. So at the moment, he's just introducing the scent of the nest to Jess. When she is 100% on that scent, so she she can just pick it up from just one larvae that's left lying about and, you know, hidden somewhere, um, or, you know, a tiny, tiny fragment of, of nest debris. Um, yeah. when, when she's so focused on that, on that hornet scent, um, he will then build in the fact that she won't go all the way to it. Yeah, she that she will, knows it's dangerous. Yeah. She will stay a couple of uh-huh. metres back. Um, and she will come, she, you know, her, her, what she's been taught to do at the minute is to circle around behind him and then bark, and that tells him, I found the thing that you want me to. Uh-huh. Um, but she won't go all the way up to it, and I think um, he might have already used that for some of her other work, which is kind of a little bit more upsetting than, than looking for hornets. So yeah, know, she's, she's already been taught yeah. not to disturb some elements of the things that she looks for. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, cadaver or a bomb or yeah something exactly. yeah yeah and i suppose the, the big thing is making that compromise as to how close the dog gets to the nest to be useful to indicate where the nest is but not getting too close to actually put itself in danger yeah i mean hopefully as you've heard the the hornets really aren't aggressive as individuals um they get defensive when you're near the nest but i think um bob and i have learned that you can you know you could probably get closer than you think to a nest not that I'm saying you should do it um but you know they're not as scary as they were made out to be um can I just mention very quickly as it's Asian Hornet week and hot off the press yesterday the first confirmed Asian Hornet sighting of this year um came in from Hampshire yesterday so um I'd just like to reiterate the message of see it snap it send it um, mm-hmm. You can report Asian Hornets through the Asian Hornet Watch app, which is free to download, and everybody should have it on their phone. No excuses, okay? Okay, good, 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 good message. See it, snap it, and send it. Thank you, Sam. That's been so great, and uh, yeah, we hope to have you back. Thank you, Sam. You're you're amazing. You've done such a great job, and we're we're really grateful. And see you next time. Super. I look forward to it. Thank you very much for having me and for listening to all the Hornet chat and uh, you can get back to your bees now. I'm sure the saga will continue over the next year or, or two even, won't it? It's just, I mean, it's inevitable, isn't it? They're coming and Bob and Sam and, and the great team they have on Jersey and the beekeepers of the southern coast. Yeah, and actually Lincolnshire, you know, they're turning up all over the place, aren't they? But it seems like another one has come come into view in in Hampshire. And last year, I remember there were some in the New Forest. And I think that's where they're going to get a foothold first, isn't it? In densely wooded places where, where nests aren't necessarily going to be seen. Oh, uh, yeah. So it, it, feels like, it feels like maybe this is the year that they might get hold or something because there must be nests out there that we just haven't seen well exactly yeah 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 and and as you say keep keeping it i mean if this is the early stages and this will this is the when they gain a foothold obviously uh the challenge will be um dealing with those those nests if they get to sort of high proportions of of nests all over the country, but uh we're really only looking at the tip of the iceberg, aren't we? But uh Yeah, and it, it'll take time for honeybees and of course many other insects to adapt to to the predation and the um 
and all, all the the game changing elements of what the Asian Hornets bring, and how I guess in France, as Sam has said, in France it's a it's kind of they've we reached a different scale of of what's happening in centre of France, and that's different to what's happening now at the front line on Jersey. So the, there, there, you know, it's, it's, it's a long way away, but there's sort of, there is sort of a light at the end of the tunnel, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, Chris, are we being pessimistic about about <laughs> this? I mean, in a way, we're kind of. Yeah. I, I I wonder. I I mean, I I suppose the optimistic view at the moment would be we'll keep them at bay. Uh, you know, we'll be vigilant all the time, uh, and right. that it's a, that that is the message that that we should be delivering at the moment. I suppose, isn't it? That, that with vigilance we can. Yeah, not limit. to be not. Not to be apathetic about it, you know. Keep report as 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 she said, you know. See, snap, and send, you know. And, and uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's got to happen, you know. And, and the more that happens, the the easier it will be, I guess. Like, like, I mean, I think I'm thinking of you know the grey squirrel, and thinking of uh, you know minks, you know domestic cats kill loads of. Uh, British wildlife, don't they? You know, my cat does. Brings this in, is true. You know, so sad when it brings in a you know a young wren or something. You know, we have lots of species here that do wreak havoc, but uh, but we don't, doesn't mean we want to accept any invasive species. No, that, that that's the word invasive is a uh, is key, isn't it? They are they are invasive. Yeah. Oh, I don't know, but you know, the, the irony is that so many species are in decline, and. Uh, and some things, and the really successful ones are the are the are the invasive ones, aren't they? I guess that's just the yeah. way it is. Yeah. 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 And as you say, other species but, uh, adapt. Yeah. And uh, uh, but how how do you feel as a beekeeper? Oh, I'm kind of in a in a prurient way, sort of looking forward to seeing the first Asian hornets like whizzing through the apiary, just because it's like a, it's like it's like the the fear is worse than the reality, if you know what I mean, and, and it just you know just. Okay, if they're coming, and if we can't stop them, then it's it's like a kind of keen to kind of know what what the situation is and and how bees are going to deal with it and what really what what it actually feels and looks like. Yeah, yeah. And Sam's been amazing, and uh, you know we've been so lucky to to, to have her on the on the on the show. And uh, if you like the podcast, then uh, tweet about us, uh, share it on Facebook. Visit the website. We've got lots of links to uh, the people that we've been speaking to and pictures and, and all sorts of information. Uh, thanks for listening to Living Big. Cheerio. Be well. <laughs>